Good morning, brothers. A lot of you asking why I'm wearing a tie today. Well, I've got to go preach to Baptists today. And uh, it was the Baptists who led me to the Lord, and uh, as soon as they led me to the Lord, they put a tie on me. Uh, in fact, our headmaster stood up one day and said, we caught a streaker yesterday. We were all aghast. He said, caught a young man without his tie on. So <clears throat> all that... I got to wear this tie today. Psalm 2 is our text. There are a number of reasons to believe that Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 were originally one psalm. These chapter headings are not always, um, are not necessarily inspired, or these chapter numbers anyway. And there are some reasons to believe that they were one psalm. For instance, both describe the way of happiness, Psalm 1, 1, and then Psalm 2, verse 12. In Acts chapter 13, verse 33, Paul quotes this psalm and says uh, in our translation, the second psalm, but in... In uh, the earliest manuscripts, it says the first psalm, uh, somehow maybe indicating that uh, Psalm 1 flowed into Psalm 2 and they were originally one, which would make a lot of sense because we didn't get a lot of treatment of judgment last time in Psalm 1. We get a hint of it at the end, and Psalm 2 fills that out. It would also help us, wouldn't it? We suspected that... uh, Jesus Christ is the blessed man who introduces us to the Psalms, who welcomes us on this threshold of the Psalms. There's only one man who could fit all of these characteristics of the blessed man, and he is the one who welcomes us and says, I will make you blessed as you cling to me. I'm the secret. I am the source of your blessing. And if Psalm 2 is certainly identified as the Son of God, then how much more comforting would it be to know for sure that uh, Psalm 1 is that same son. Well, we do know he is that same son through the rest of Scripture. He is the one who blesses us by taking us in the righteous way, and he is the one who blesses us, according to Psalm 2, by protecting us from all of his and all our enemies. We need that, don't we? We need not only the leadership into a right way of living, But this is a dangerous world. This world is trying to kill us. If you haven't noticed from hurricanes and and other natural phenomena, uh, this evil world is trying to kill us. This this, uh, world full of demons and devils is trying to kill us. This is a dangerous world. Everywhere we turn, it's dangerous. We need to know not only the way of righteousness, how to walk in it, but we we need assurance that as we strive to walk in that way, Christ is our refuge. I want you to look at this psalm with that in mind, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray together. O Lord, would you open my brother's eyes to see the good news of this passage, that you, you, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are our refuge and strength. There are those here today who are troubled, who are terrified, who are worried and anxious about all manner of things, they need to know a refuge. There are those who here who are, who are comfortable and are not aware of the danger surrounding. They need to know you are a refuge. There may be others here within the sound of my voice who, who don't care, who think that they are perfectly sufficient in and of themselves. They need to know that you are the only refuge, and that without you there will be no refuge from the wrath of the Lamb at the great day. So, Lord, we pray that you would convict, comfort, convert, and console with your holy word today. We pray in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's men said together, amen. I'm going to get my uh, clock here. I know you will appreciate that. <clears throat> In the first chapters of Genesis, we read that account that you know well, but maybe it's worth recalling to your mind that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and, and uh, they had everything that they needed, and God said He's give, He'd given them everything and more than they needed. That uh, the only restriction they had on them, you can eat from every tree, every tree of, the, of the garden except the tree in the center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're working separately one day, and, and uh, the serpent comes to Eve, and he begins to question what she's received from the Lord. He didn't say that you, he didn't really say that you would die. Uh, look, look at how pleasant it is to the, the eye and to taste and so forth. So he must be withholding something from you. So she was convinced. She took of the fruit she handed it to her husband who knew full well it was wrong, but he had had this doubt creep into his mind as well. Somehow God has limited us. Somehow God has withheld from us something that we really need, something that would be for our good. So we're going to, we're going to show him we're going to eat from this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that will make us like God, and we will have the full enjoyment of being God as He does. He can't have that all to Himself. And so they, they took of it and ate of it, and in that day they spiritually died. They, we call that the fall. And then what happens? It doesn't make them fulfilled. 
uh, it doesn't make them happy. It doesn't increase the quality of their life. In fact, something happens that they have never experienced before. They experience shame. God finds them, for instance, God finds them, and He said, uh, why are you hiding? They said, well, we were, we, were, we were ashamed because we are naked. He said, who told you? I never told you anything that should make you feel shame. Who introduced shame into my good creation? And the other reason we're, we're hiding here is because we heard, your, we heard you, we were afraid of you. They'd never been afraid of God before. They walked with Him in the cool of the day. Because of their rebellion against God, because they had rebelled against the God who gave them true freedom, they became slaves of shame and fear. And then look at how pathetic their response is. They try to, they try to hide their naked, nakedness with fig leaves which will rot, and they try to hide from the Almighty God behind bushes. They're looking for a refuge, and all they can find with their own resources are very inadequate refuges. And the same is true today. We're afraid of all kinds of things. We may not admit it to one another, but we live in fear. We're the most anxious generation in history. <clears throat> and we are constantly looking for refuge. And our text tells us that there are four voices to which we may listen. This is an insight from Harry Ironside, a great old evangelist who said he found four voices in this text. He found, first of all, the voice of the world promising refuge as the creation promised in vain refuge to Adam and Eve. But then he says, here are the certain voices of refuge, the voices none other than those of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to look at them in turn here as we look at this great passage beginning in verses 1 through 3. If you look at the refuge that the world offers, you will find it to be helpless. There is no refuge in the world, and yet the world constantly offers its refuge to us, and it's pictured here in the form of kings. Now, yes, the ancient kings uh, promised refuge. They said they would be a god to their people, but it's really a metaphor for every false form of refuge offered by human strength. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here is what I've just been describing. These kings saying, uh, the, the, uh, those other kings that you lived under, they limited you. Those gods, those religions that you lived under limited you. I will be your king. I will provide everything that you need. And so they plot against God, especially. They ultimately plot against God, saying He's the one really trying to, trying to, to limit your freedom. 
He really can't do anything for you. I'll give you everything you need. You pay homage to me. You pay your tributes and your taxes to me. You bow to me, and I will provide what you need. <clears throat> this is exactly the attitude that, that uh, the apostles recognized in Acts chapter 4. Our Psalm 2 is quoted often in the New Testament. I'll just tell you that quickly. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 5, Revelation chapter 1, chapter 2 and chapter 12. It's quoted regularly whenever the, the writer is illustrating the vanity of kings opposing God. And in Acts chapter 4, the apostles, soon after the uh, resurrection of Christ and as the uh, persecution is coming against the early church, the apostles say this is exactly what we were told would happen. Herod and Pilate they were these kings who plotted in vain to take God off his throne. And they thought they had won when they put him on the cross. This is exactly what was being anticipated, what was, what was being prophesied. They put him on the cross. They thought they were victorious. But our sovereign God has had the last laugh, literally, by rising from the dead, ascending to the throne, and now laughing in derision at these kings who thought that they could rise up against him. Well, it's easy to see those sins in ancient kings, isn't it? And it's easy to think, well, boy, it must have been exciting to be those apostles living the Bible from the inside out. They, they were living, they understood that what they were living was reality. Well, we must recognize the same thing. The same truths are present today. We are just as much in a cosmic battle between uh, God's forces and forces of evil as ever before. And the forces of the human forces rising in vain, plotting in vain against, against us and against our Christ are still present. They take on different forms. But we are every day living out the reality of the biblical picture. It's just different personalities. So everywhere around you, people are saying, forces are saying, agencies are saying, we can provide real refuge and real freedom for you. We, can, we are the cultural elite, some will say. We are, the, we are the ones who understand what the right side of history is, so we're going to tell you how to be on the right side of history as long as you follow us. You will be popular, you will be successful, you will be accepted into our circles and so forth. We will define what real freedom is and we will define what real refuge is. And if you don't find refuge with us, we will punish you. We'll take away your stuff. We'll take away your influence. Politicians tell us, we'll take care of you. We'll solve your problems. Uh, maybe a financial instrument will tell you, I can guard against the downside. I will, I will give you nothing but upsides. I'll protect your future. I'll protect your retirement. I'll protect your job. Trust in me. Pursue me. Maybe you are finding that in yourself. I'm... You say, I've lived long enough, I'm wise enough, I can figure this thing out. 
It's good to get a little inspiration every now and then from Amen study or go to church every now and then, but, you know, living full tilt in reverence for Christ, well, I mean, that's what radicals do, and I don't want to get too crazy, lose my friends, you know, and I do, I mean, I do know things. You know, the preacher, what does a preacher know? I've lived life. I've had experience, and so I can figure this thing out on my own. What's God's response to that? What's God's response to a statement like we heard at the Emmys the other night? A man openly, Michael Shea, openly mocking those who trust in Christ. The only people who thank Jesus are Republicans and ex-crackheads. What's God's response to that? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You can listen to the voice of the world and all of those who provide refuge for you, and you can find that that refuge may seem to work when times are good, when your health is okay, when, when, you're, when you're employed, uh, when you're not on your deathbed, but what are you going to do when the bottom falls out, when a boulder falls on your life, when you come to your final hours? What is God's response going to be to those things that you are putting your faith in? He will laugh. Why does He laugh? He laughs in derision, our text tells us. He laughs in derision against those who think, number one, that His way is oppressive. Did He have to argue much with Adam and Eve who are trembling in the bushes behind their pathetic fig leaves? Does He have to argue much with them? Did you really think that you had it so bad before this? You had no experience of shame. You lacked for nothing. You were completely protected. You had everything and more that you needed. You were at peace with each other. You were at peace with me. What was limiting about that? It's like the young lady who sat in my office one time who, uh, whose brother had come to Christ, and she was intrigued, and she was coming to church, and she, she really uh, thought she was something. She, was, she had a, a really... Uh, impressive job. She was a beautiful lady. She, she had uh, any boyfriend she wanted, and uh, her health was good, and she was driving a nice car. She was utterly miserable. And she wondered why her, her brother was so happy and uh, why she was having to drown her sorrows in, in uh, drink and in combination of pills and, and trying to find uh, some thrill in sexual encounters and whatnot, but she was utterly miserable. Nothing was working. And so she said, I'd like to know more about this Christianity thing, but I don't want to go crazy with it. I said, well, what do, what do you mean by going crazy with it? She said, well, and here she was. She, she was. she was all, you know, dressed up and had everything on the outside that made her look beautiful, but she was just an she was a wreck. She was utterly miserable. 
And she said, well, my brother, I mean, my brother, you know, he used to be such a fun guy. Now he goes to church every Sunday. He goes to church Sunday morning and Sunday evening, and he's volunteered to teach Sunday school. I don't want to be a fanatic like that. I just want to be happy. I said, so what, how, would you, how would you design this thing if you could? Well, I would continue life the way I have it, but I would have enough religion to make me happy. So I said, this is before Dr. Phil, I said, so how is that working for you right now? <laughs> Your way, I mean. I mean, you're living the way you've designed life, so how, is there, how, how do you think that if you're going to design, continue to design life, that you're, you're going to be even happier? She had to think about that. Eventually, like the prodigal son who got tired of eating the pods that the pigs ate, she came to Christ and said, I don't care if it makes me a fanatic. I need refuge. I need escape from this misery I'm in. The Lord laughs in derision thinking, do you really think that my way is oppressive? The devil is good at what he does. The devil is good at convincing you that you, if in trusting in whatever you are other than Christ, he's good at convincing you this is really happy. This is a way to be. This is a party. This is utterly happy. God laughs in derision. He also laughs in derision at those who think they can provide their own refuge. You know, James Weldon Johnson, the, the uh, marvelous... Uh, a poet, African-American poet who took those sermons he grew up with and made them into poems. I love that poem he has. Young man, young man, your arm's too short to box with God. There is no refuge in the world. That's the first verse that we've heard. We turn from that voice to voice that we, we heard, and we turn from that voice to the voice of the Father who laughs at those other voices and says, I can provide your refuge and strength. Come to me and I will provide that refuge and strength specifically through my son. That's the next verse we hear in verses 5 through 9. That refuge is provided through Jesus Christ. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's a hymn we have, praise the threats, praise the God whose threats alarmed thee. Praise the God who whispered peace. There is, a, there is grace in God's producing fear, in God's terrifying you away from those false refuges. He speaks to them in His wrath, but not just, to, not just because He gets some kind of sick enjoyment at making people afraid but he intends to drive them away from the place of danger. I want you to go instead to my king on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. How is he going to do this? <clears throat> How is God going to provide refuge for us in Jesus Christ? 
He's going to do it by terrifying us away from our sin, driving us to the cross, and bringing us specifically into the church, bringing us into a kingdom. He brings us into a kingdom that is unconquerable. He brings us into an investment plan that can never fail. He brings us into a health care plan that will never let us down but promises a brand new body. In Christian art, it's, uh, the church is often pictured as a ship in the midst of a storm-tossed sea that never breaks apart. Oh, it shakes us, it rattles us around, but it never breaks apart. To come to Christ is to come under the reign of a king, to come into the refuge of his church, his kingdom that is unconquerable. Who is it, the one who does it? We've already answered that, but here in this passage, as well as in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, Paul says, this psalm identifies Jesus Christ. This psalm identifies Jesus Christ who will be the king and proven to be the king by rising, being raised by the Father from the dead. The one who conquers death is the one who promises refuge to you forever. You join, he joins your life to his so that he guarantees eternal life for your soul and your body through resurrection. When will he do it? You say, when is he going to bring this kind of rain to the earth? He's doing it now. In verse 6, he says that, as for me, I've set my king on my holy hill. There is a nowness to the reign of Christ. <clears throat> you may not see it the way you'd like to see it. And you may think that something that you can't see and is not immediately uh, visible to you has no power, but just think for a moment about natural gas and the effect that we've seen of it in North Boston. Nobody could see that power, but it blew, what, 20 houses out of the ground. Just because you can't see the movement of the kingdom of God doesn't mean that it's not powerful. It is powerful now, but it is also going to be even more powerful when he finishes his work of redemption, verses 8 and 9. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Here is the promise that was realized at Pentecost. When, when, uh, when the apostles preached and, uh, the, the, and the, the, the tongues of fire fell and each heard their, the gospel in their own language, and then in uh, the spread of the church in the early chapters of Acts from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, they recognized He is fulfilling His promise. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. I'm not just going to be a Jewish God. I'm not going to be a mono-ethnic God. I am going to be the king of all the nations. Jesus dies on the cross. He's resurrected. He goes back to heaven and He said, I've done my part, Father. I've already asked you to give me the nations. Now give me the nations. And how does God answer that prayer? By pouring out the Spirit and making us witnesses to the ends of the earth. The kingdom is spreading how? Where? The kingdom is spreading all over the globe as the gospel is being preached, as people are giving their hearts to it and giving their lives to it, as they're submitting to it. 
then the kingdom of God is ruling and reigning. The kingdom of God is spreading as it is taking over souls and lives. And as those lives are transformed, they transform society around them. The kingdom of God is spreading. And there's only one way to live, and that is to live on the winning side. If you're trusting in anyone, anything else, you will not be on the winning side. God, Christ, is in the process of saving those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and they will not be able to be counted. It won't be a few people in heaven. They will not be able to be counted. But millions upon millions upon millions will be those who have been made citizens of the kingdom of God, and they will experience that refuge forever and ever. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this, on this passage, <clears throat> anticipates the, the protests of some who say, but, but it, it just seems that those who are in control, in control of our culture, in control of our politics, in control of our businesses, they seem to be, they seem to be uh, in utter control and there's no hope. And, and, you know, the, the early Christians would have felt that way with Rome. Rome said, we have finally conquered God. And we have set up deities. But here is what Spurgeon reminds us happened to those Roman emperors, those who opposed Christianity. Of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces and others high in office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians... One became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in a miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that will not bear recital. One died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died, the most miserable and excruciating deaths, several of them having an untold complication of diseases. And eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoners. All of them claimed to be gods. Christ lives, and those with him will live forever. The final voice we find in the text is the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's not so obvious, but it's subtly lying behind these verses. It's in this, it's in this invitation in verses 10 through 12. Every time, every place you see the work of, one, uh, of a person of the Godhead, you see the activity of that person of the Godhead. And so we've seen the Son in his triumph over death as our king. We've seen the Father who gives us the Son, and now we see the Spirit whose work it is to invite us to the Savior, to unite us to Him, and to lead us all of our days into this refuge. Harry Ironside calls this, this, um, this one who gives us <clears throat> this refuge, he says, this is the Holy Spirit who gives us a very gentle, very tender, very loving, very tender voice. Here are the invitations. Listen to them. Be wise. It is the only reasonable thing to do. Be warned. It is the urgent thing to do. Serve the Lord with fear. 
it is the biblical thing to do. Rejoice with trembling, it is the only fulfilling thing to do. And kiss the Son, it is the grateful thing to do. These uh, words come to us with urgency. They come to us with strong voices from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And uh, sometimes we may think these are not tender voices. These are not sensitive voices. These are frightening voices. Uh, They are, as the king said, they are limiting voices. But the urgency, the urgency that we experience here. It comes from love. It comes from a loving Father who made you, who said, I made you for, I made you for eternity. I made you for flourishing. I made you for fulfillment. I made you for joy. And as long as you're seeking refuge in these vain things, you will never find it. I'm warning you away from the edge. A number of years ago, I read the story of a of a <clears throat> horrific car crash that occurred just south of London in Godstone near Surrey. <clears throat> it's on the M25 and a large truck carrying great rolls of paper ignored the warning signs, the flashing warning signs of fog ahead, and uh, he didn't he didn't slow down, he just kept going and he lost control and the, and the truck fell over and threw these rolls of paper everywhere. And, but then uh, neither did any of the other cars heed the warnings and they just kept plowing into one another, kept plowing into these, these rolls of paper and then plowing into each other. Ten were dead by the end of it. The police arrived on the scene as soon as they could. And uh, they saw the problem that people were ignoring the warning signs, so they ran up the traffic, tried to get ahead of the warning lights, and they started putting out cones just to stop people. Not only did the people ignore the warnings, ignore the policemen, they were driving around the cones and accelerating, and the police would hear the sickening screeches and bending of metal and howls of pain after that. One policeman then said in desperation, by the end, he and his partner, with tears streaming down their faces, were hurling the cones at the windshields of the cars, begging, pleading, stop, there's danger ahead. A Savior who welcomed you in by Psalm 1 and said, I I promise you a way of peace and happiness and righteousness is a Savior in Psalm 2 who with tears streaming down his face leaned over Jerusalem and said, how often have I longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. It is this one who says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden of trying to provide your own refuge to find it in anyone else, come to me and I will give you 
rest. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, these are hard-hitting words and perhaps difficult for some to hear. We have this foolishness in our hearts, Father, you know full well that, that these things that we are hanging on to, we're afraid to let go of them. These reputations, <clears throat> these ways of life, ways of spending, ways of trusting, ways of networking, ways of finding knowledge and ways of finding hope for our culture. We don't want to let go of them. Though they've never proven effective in our lives and though they have left us miserable, they're still comfortable to us. We pray, O Holy Spirit, the one who gave us this invitation at the end, that you would do your work in us too. And would you invade our lives and pry our fingers away from everything that we trust in other than you. And may we find the deep satisfaction, the deep confidence, the courage that comes from letting go and falling fully into the hands of our Heavenly Father, doubly enclosed there in Jesus Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen.